Hey listeners, this is Sean Dickdan, co-host of the Med Lit Review podcast. As many of you may have noticed, it's been quite a while since we've uploaded an episode or posted on social media. Like many residents and other healthcare workers during the COVID-19 pandemic, we were all hit pretty hard. Two of us actually got COVID and recovered fully. We've also all had some other life updates. Two of us have moved, one of us got engaged. Uh, unfortunately, our unofficial podcast dog, Bailey, has crossed the Rainbow Bridge. So needless to say, it's been a hectic past couple of months. Some positive things, all three of us have matched for fellowship in the same city, letting us continue working on the podcast. Uh, we've also all taken our medicine boards. Uh, and Now that we have that out of the way, we're excited to pick up where we left off, uh, reassemble the team, and start making some new episodes. In the meantime, we have some pre-recorded episodes from before all the pandemonium happened. Uh, we're excited to share some of them with you while we get things going again. So we can start off with a fantastic case and lit review from Rachel Redfield. So thank you guys for your support and your patience and take it away, Rachel. And we're live. <clears throat> Hello. Excellent. Amazing. Rachel, can you ASMR those grapes right now? <laughs> For listeners at home, we just spent a long time trying to set up our AV stuff, and I was having fun with uh, ASMR and crackers. Will you explain to people what ASMR means? Um, it stands for something, 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 and something. <laughs> oh, for 4, Ben. Audio. Nope, not even. <laughs> Autonomous sensory meridian response. None of this can be used. I don't consent to any of this being in the podcast. But no, I, I, uh, autonomous sensory meridian response. ASMR. Very Top tier stuff here. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I can hear you chew. Okay, yeah. I am peering over at the sheer amount of numbers on that paper, and I am afraid. Oh, the, this paper? Oh, yeah, that paper. I know. Get excited. Um, I, Rachel I is over. ready. <laughs> you know how I hate statistics? Well, now I love that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good old 180 on the stats. <laughs> I love it. Here I am. Okay. So. This is the MedLit review. <laughs> yes. Sean's yes. face just lit up. He was so excited. I'm going to start singing Katy Perry's Fireworks. Where we are a... <laughs> I am Rachel Redfield. I am a current PGY3 in internal medicine. I am Sean Dickton. I am also a current PGY3 in internal medicine. My name is Ben Jones. I am a current PGY3 in internal medicine. A smidge redundant. <laughs> we all work together. Uh, but this is Ben's opportunity to introduce a podcast. Great. This is the MedLit Review, uh, where we uh, review randomized controlled trials in a fun and relatable way for med students, residents, and others who are interested in the medical literature. Uh, this podcast should not be construed as medical advice and our opinions are our own and do not reflect those of our employers. Um, 
there are so many people that help us with this podcast and we'll go into more detail at the end of the podcast because I'm not going to remember all of them right now. But uh, Rachel is our uh, trial leader today and I'm very excited to see what she has in store for us. Okay, so I was going to use a different trial this week, but then I was teaching some adorable little MS3s about fluids and then I was casually like, and then like the SALT ED trial was one that came in 2018. And then I realized oh, I'm a poser. I have not even read the SALT ED trial. What? I was just quoting it like a terrible Medlet Review podcaster that I am. First so, of all, how dare you? I know. That was a low moment for me. And even one of the med students came up to me and said, I love your podcast. He just saw my name. I didn't say anything about it. And I was so honored. And then there I was disappointing him. That's funny because I, all the med students I work with also say they love my podcast. That's because I make them listen to it all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Please report back to me about my podcast. Your grade, I promise, isn't on the line. Wink, wink. I just assigned them all a different episode. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Give me feedback. It must be all positive. Um, So I already gave away what trial we're going to talk about today and it is the salt ed trial um so let's first open up with a clinical case which is what we usually do and and mine's going to be straightforward it's a 30 year old woman who presents with right lower quadrant pelvic pain found to have a blood pressure of 90 over 60 tachycardic in the 120s respiratory rate 16 labs are significant for white blood elevated white blood cell count with neutrophil predominance so as you can probably surmise, this patient, this 30-year-old woman has sepsis. Uh, and then you're the phys- physician on call. So let's pretend that we're the ED provider because this SALT ED trial is primarily focused on the first responders, which are usually the emergency departments. And which fluid would you give? What would you guys give? I would give isotonic fluids. Okay. Cop out. <laughs> nice, Sean. Ha ha. You really Got- answered that question. Gotcha. Which isotonic fluid would you give? Oh my God, that's a great question. Okay, I only know of three. Okay, let's hear them. I know of normal saline. I know I have lactated ringers. And I know of like plasma light or mm-hmm. some, fan- some, mm-hmm. some fancy boy, uh, like very r- realistic to our own plasma type fluid. But like light on the body, you know, you're not going to get late from plasma light. Not light on the wallet, though. <laughs> True. No, and that's the downside. Bingo. Why don't we just use plasma light and everybody? that in. No, it's it's too expensive. It's, it's a lot more expensive than normal saline and lactator ringers. Do you talk about how expensive it is? Uh, I do not in this podcast. Okay, no. cool. I'm going to Google it while you ask. Oh, our... plasma light? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, do it. Um, ben, when we started intern year, what fluid were we primarily using no uh, normal saline i was all about normal saline because you know i had been told as a as a med student that lactator ringers was for the or we didn't really use it in on the floor unless we really needed to totally for, uh, an indication of which i did not know as a med student and um i was just like well, i'm not gonna use that as an intern, I remember ordering lactated ringers for whatever reason, and then my attending saw that a there was an empty bag of LR on the IV pole next to the patient, and he said, what on earth is that? And I said, we gave him fluids, and he's like, no, no. What, are we a bunch of surgeons? And then walked away, <laughs> and that, that still sticks with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that I had the exact same experience. 
you know, I remember in med school, this is, you know, now many years ago of LR was for surgeons, normal saline was for everybody else. And, you know, I didn't look much, that much into it until about maybe like a year and a half ago, all of a sudden there was just this giant switch, like everyone now we're using LR and because some study had come in, come out or I guess people were actually reading the study. I mean, cause the study was actually in 2018. So maybe I was a little bit delayed in my 16. Uh, the actual study was published in okay. 2018. Okay. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was Sorry. done in 2016 to 17. But, um, so, you know, I probably should have heard about it earlier than I did, but all this to say that I started using LR in the last year to two years. And I wasn't entirely sure why. <laughs> I just trusted my colleagues and my attendings. All right. So why do we why do we care? What's like what do you what have you guys heard about? Like why is normal sailing now like the devil equivalent? I have heard that there is there are are, are true benefits that we've seen in studies. I suspect the one that we're going to hear about today when you compare the two fluids head to head as resuscitative fluids. And the thing that specifically comes to mind is a reduced incidence of acute kidney injury when using LR versus normal. So LR lactated ringers versus using normal saline or 0.9% saline or NS. Yeah. Yeah. And what electrolyte have you guys heard like talked about what, like what's so evil about normal saline supposedly? So it has something to do with chloride. Yes. And um, there was a rival podcast that shall not be named that mm-hmm. talked about this. They're not our rivals. <laughs> That's true. They they're are our rivals. They're another podcast that uh, talked about this in detail. And I don't remember all of the details, to be perfectly honest, but I, it seemed to have something to do with chloride causing uh, a relative acidosis. Um, and uh with when you're septic and already acidotic, you don't want to do that further. Yeah. It makes sense. Also, can we just give a shout out to the curbsiders? Cause we can say their name <laughs> and they're amazing. And they're amazing. As I, is Joel Toff. I apologize that I did not listen to the, their, their episode on fluids prior to this. So this but episode, I will after this is one forty three. Uh, this is part of the Neff madness, um, episode set. It's fluid wars. I'm so excited to hear what you have recommend. to say. I think we should broadcast ourselves as the number two medical-based podcast in Philadelphia <laughs> by like a lot, by like many, many miles, but but maybe but number two. But still we get to be number two. <laughs> we'll see. Someone's going to send us a great podcast from Philadelphia. And yeah. Well, we'll we'll okay. we bump that. yourself down the list. <laughs> okay, so you guys are exactly right. Uh, that's pretty much what I had heard about. I knew that normal saline has a lot more chloride in it than our plasma does. And it causes hyperchloremic, is that it? Hyperchloremic acidosis. But again, like, yeah, acid's bad. Yeah, that makes sense. But like, again, like, what does it have to do with an AKI? I didn't really get it, but I knew that I could, at least on rounds, kind of mumble something about bad for kidneys and causes more acidosis. And people would be like, yeah, yeah, she knows what she's talking about. (laughs) I had no idea what I was talking about. so without diving too deep into the physiology and all the theories ab- about why chloride is bad for us, I will say that there's a lot of papers out there and I totally encourage everyone to go digging if you're really passionate about chloride and they have postulated and in some papers shown that 
uh, higher levels of chloride decreases renal artery flow velocity and therefore renal cortical tissue perfusion. Um, there's been randomized control trials showing this. Uh, the other thing that I read about was um, that high chloride load likely causes vasoconstriction of afferent arterioles. Afferent is before you get to the glomeruli. I can never say that. <laughs> glomeruluses? So, glomeruli. Yes, glomeruluses. No, no. I think you're right. <laughs> and so therefore that would decrease the GFR. If you're constricting uh, what's happening before you get to the glomer- glomeruli, then you lower the GFR. And chloride, for some reason, that's probably more advanced than my brain can handle, constricts. Can I... I remember Joel Toff at Kidney Boy, chief of nephrology at Cashlack Memorial, and blog... What's his blog? His blog is Precious Bodily Fluids, The Salt Whisperer, something like that, who is an incredible (laughs) nephrologist. Uh, I remember him saying the exact same thing and i remember him adding the context of and i'll try to do this justice if uh all of a sudden the um the glomerulus or the afferent arterial and uh uh, got a high chloride load it would assume that that was sort of like almost like blood like it was high the yeah, just like a lot more like so much that it would sort of vasoconstrict to prevent yourself from bleeding out because the the uh uh, kidney filters the whole body's uh, volume of blood so quickly that if it were to sort of turn all of that volume into urine, you'd essentially pee out and pee out all of your b- volume and uh, die. So it vasoconstricts naturally to that high chloride load to prevent this massive diuresis. Hmm. I'm on the show notes. Read the show notes, kids. Two words. Macula densa. Macula densa. <laughs> In the distal tubule, senses the chloride. It, uh, which is elevated in normal saline, as you mentioned. It stimulates the re- release of vasoconstrictors, like you said, perfectly. Uh, constricts the afferent arterial, lowering the GFR. Awesome. Okay, so pretty much that's the theory. Uh, there are papers that may or may not prove this. Encourage you guys to read them. Again, I don't want to get too much into this because it could be a whole discussion on its own. But I, I wanted to have a baseline understanding of the theories behind why chloride is so bad and why we are you know trying to avoid normal saline because normal saline has a lot of chloride in it and it has been shown that when you give people a bunch of normal saline their chloride goes up their bicarb goes down and now you have hyperchloremic acidosis snaps excellent all right ben do you want to summarize that sure so it's basically we're trying to see if the fluid causes a hyperchloremic acidosis because that's going to cause an aki exactly so Normal saline may or may not do that, probably does it, and does lactate of ringers or plasma light have the same effects? And does it even matter? Does Do our patient outcomes, ultimately we care about patient outcomes uh, and we want to know what does this mean for us? So there was two trials uh, that occurred simultaneously. I already mentioned the one that we're going to talk about, SALT-ED, but at the same time at Vanderbilt, they had what's called the SMART Med trial. And essentially, they did multiple trials at once using a lot of different patients. And it just depended on where the patient ended up after the emergency department for which trial they were in. So if you were in the ED and ended up in the ICU, then you went to the SMART med trial. If you were in the ED and ended up in a non-critical setting, so like telemetry or just a normal floor, 
in the hospital than you were now put in the SALT ED trial, which is the one I'm going to talk about since, you know, I primarily spend time uh, on a telemetry floor or a, a non-tele floor. And I thought that would be interesting. And I'm not going to talk at all about SMART. This was a 16-month trial looking at about 13,000 patients in the ED who were hospitalized in non-ICU hospital beds who were given either normal saline or a balanced solution. There's two types of balanced solutions that they considered. It was lactative ringers versus plasma light. I will go ahead and say that barely anyone used the plasma light. It was mainly LR. So I'm simplifying this in my mind and saying this is a study comparing normal saline to lactated ringers. All right. So as I mentioned, this was done at Vanderbilt. They looked at a, about 13,000 patients in the ED who were hospitalized, which is pretty awesome. Solid. Yeah. Solid yeah. number. It was open label. So they, it was not blinded. And essentially what they did was kind of interesting. They basically took a whole month. So let's say January. They said all the patients coming in the ED who need fluids are going to get normal saline. And then the next month, everyone gets lactate ringers or plasma light. I love that as a design. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I understand that it would be a logistical nightmare to try and blind <laughs> people for fluids. And then also a lot of people are getting fluids within minutes of getting to the ED. So, you know, just I'm assuming what they did was they just stocked the nursing rooms with just like that fluid for that month. And so that's what they could grab. I'm totally making this up, but I imagine that that would be the no, easiest I love way it. to this do it. No, I love it. This is such a good visual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like, okay, now we're doing LR because a lot of times you don't even, you don't even have the orders put in. You just know the patient comes into the ED, they're hypotensive, they're clearly sick, give them some fluids and that verbal communication with the nurse that all happens very quickly. Okay. So when a provider did go to the computer and look at uh, and typed in the electronic medical record to put in the order, there was a pop-up that basically gave relative contraindications to specifically balanced crystalloids, aka lactate ringers or plasma light. And they said, if the patient has hyperkalemia, you probably could consider giving them normal saline. And if they have brain injury, then you may want to pick something that's not hypotonic. Um, so normal saline would be more of the choice. Now, this is a whole nother discussion, but I don't know if LR is really a contraindication for hyperkalemia, but regardless, that's what they said was a relative contraindication. And so providers could opt into ordering off protocol crystalloids, um, if they deem that was necessary. This was an intention to treat study. And so if those patients were given something else, then they were still included in whatever month they were supposed to get. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know we've talked a lot about intention to treat, but I always have to remind myself that even if you were on an LR month, but your provider chose to give you normal saline, you were still considered uh, an LR, part of the LR group. Makes sense. The mm -hmm. other key thing is that this was only in the emergency department. So the second they land on the floor and would see me or you guys or any of our colleagues, you could decide, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do the exact opposite. Now, you may argue like, well, if, if a patient already shows up with LR, I'm probably going to continue it because the nurse is like, hey, do you want to order another bag or whatnot? Um, but again, these were they did the even amount of months. So I would assume that any of that variability would be consistent. Any mm. questions? I'm 
on the edge of my seat. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Good. Okay. So quick primary outcome, hospital free days. So basically they looked at these patients for 28 days and said, how many of those days in the 28 days were they, were they not in the hospital? So if patients stayed for three months, then they had zero hospital free days for the 28 days. If they left right away after one day, then your hospital free days was 27. So that was a primary outcome. Secondary outcome, which I think you should pay more attention to because we'll talk more about it later, was this uh, model called MAKE30, which I never heard of, but it's MAKE30 stands for Major Adverse Kidney Events Before Day 30. I kind of quickly Googled Googled what MAKE30 is, and basically there was some task force uh, maybe 10 years ago that decided figuring out what an AKI means clinically is very difficult, and a lot of trials, unless they're huge, have a hard time capturing any differences. So they thought that death, dialysis, and sustained loss of kidney function as a combination would be something that you can look at. It makes a lot of like intuitive sense. Yeah, I I don't, well, I'll talk about more of it later. It, it was a little bit, I was a little bit confused at first because I was like, wait, death is included in that when it's by any cause. So I'll definitely be excited to hear y'all's opinions, especially after we get through some of the statistics. So any questions about that? No, I love it. Uh, composite outcomes are um, an interesting way to um, make sure you capture, uh, like you, you, they're easier to find a difference, I believe, uh, yeah. generally. Um, and um, so we have to keep that in context. But, um, you know, it's better than being like mortality for like just fluids. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's so it's convinced it's, it's more compelling to be like, Oh, there's a mortality difference. Like, yeah, but you're rarely going to find that. Yeah. So using a composite outcome seems appropriate, especially as a secondary outcome. Yeah, I agree. And I had never really paid much attention to composite endpoints. So I'm glad you use that phrase. Cause that is what the make 30 is. Um, the other things, other secondary outcomes uh, in addition to make 30 was uh, death on its own. And then also the proportion of patients with stage two or greater AKI um, using a specific criteria. So even though the make 30 is composed of three things, they also looked at those three things separately, if that makes sense. So it's not just one secondary outcome, which was make 30. There's actually three secondary outcomes. Rachel, what about patients who arrived in the ED with uh, end-stage renal disease? Good question. So these patients could be included still in the trial, but they obviously could not, um, a lot of their secondary outcomes they could not address because they already have kidney disease. They're only already on dialysis. Progression to dialysis is sort of moot when they're on dialysis. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but, but they still were used. So let's get into the nitty gritty of the statistics. So the, the team at Vanderbilt decided that their goal was to detect a difference of half a day of hospital free days between the two groups. And in order to do that, they would require about 14,000 patients, which is around what they had. So just half a day. I mean, what do you guys think about that? That's pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like a lot, but that uh, when you add that to other things, it could be a big deal. Um, and any hospital looking to reduce their length of stay is gonna gonna want to uh, think about this pretty seriously. Yeah, and I guess it depends on 
the average length of stay for patients. You know, if their average length of stay is two days, then half a day does make a big difference. But if their average length of stay is over 30 days, Uh, then half a day is not. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, this was an intention to treat analysis. The hospital free days were analyzed with a multivariable proportional odds, ordinal logistic regression model. And I'm just going to say that I don't, completely understand what that means and I went on a long long Google journey today preparing for this and I still don't have a great understanding but I think it's okay if we basically understand that there were independent variables in the study group that were accounted for like sex race which inpatient service um and days elapsed since the initiation of the study because maybe people got better. Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. It, when, it does. When I think of when I think of like like those things would be confounders, like things that affect okay. both my my independent and my dependent variable, like age or sex. And when I think about a, uh, like trying to get rid of confounders or trying to mitigate, make them equal amongst both groups, I think of regression, sort of mapping things out in a plot and drawing the best line I can through that plot as a tool to do that. So. If, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Okay, awesome. It feels like the description of this model was just some somebody who like looked up uh, a statistics dictionary and just like <laughs> picked a word and then like was like, "How long can I make this? Let's pick another <laughs> word. Let's pick another word. Oh wait, we need to end with model," and that's what we came up with. So I think you, I think we don't need to delve too deeply into it. And I think your explanation was actually great. Thank you. Um, okay. So the only other thing that I laughed at while reading is, do you remember in one of our prior podcasts, we talked about Hey Biddle Pedo? Yes. (laughs) So the trial did, in preparation, or prior to starting the trial, they actually set an interim analysis. And to do that, you have to use this Hey Biddle Pedo boundary that essentially calculates like okay let's make sure that we don't need to stop this trial early and but your p-value for that moment has to be less than 0.001 and because of that which we actually didn't talk in the last uh, about this at the last time when you do your final analysis you actually can't use 0.05 because it has to add up to 0.05 since you've already used the 0.001 now they said okay Uh, on our final analysis, our p-value actually has to be a little bit less, which would be 0.049, which is very detailed, but... That is interesting. Yeah, I wonder why that is. I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, the difference between 0.05 and 0.049, I mean, I don't really care that much, but... Some would say 0.05 is pretty hand-wavy, nonsense. Exactly. Arbitrary as it is. is Yeah, so 4.9%, sure, why not? And then um, they did... so. We've also talked about, I'm just like, you know, really throwing in the stats you here. Really you know, I'm really passionate this. about statistics. Seriously, I can tell. I, I, I can sense the passion. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I actually wrote multiplicity, yes, because <laughs> they did. Actually, interestingly, they, in their supplementary appendix, like preparing for this, they said they were not going to account for multiplicity. And I was like, oh. Oh, really? But then, I know. But then in their actual publication, the 2018, they did talk about Bonferroni approach and accounting for multiplicity. Do you think they got better results than they expected? I honestly think oh. so, yes. I had that small thought. and was I like, don't know eh. if that's... 
I don't know if someone's going to come and find me for saying that. I know. And hunt me down. But I feel like you're like, oh, no, no, we're not, we're not going to check this. Oh, wait, we can check this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We oh, can we're check checking this. this. Yeah, this definitely. Is good. Oh, yeah, this is good. We'll be like, ha Do you, Sean, do you want to really quick give us a summary of multiplicity and maybe use like the fishing? I w- I'm all on board until you said fishing. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Okay, here's my understanding of multiplicity. Yes. And then I'm, I don't know what you're talking okay. about, but I'm going to incorporate fishing. Okay, I think Ben knows what fishing in some, is. Oh, well, I'm not going to let him talk. In some, I'm going to improv <laughs> this. I'm going improv- <laughs> to improv this in. Okay, so when I think of multiplicity, I think of if you check enough variables, then your probability that one of those variables is erroneously elevated. I'm ignoring Ben who's pantomiming. When you check enough <laughs> variables, uh, then the probability of one of those variables erroneously uh, being uh, significant increases with the more variables that you check. And that's because um, fish have a lot of scale. No, uh, and that's because basically the more times you cast your fishing line, the more likely you are to catch a fish. Yes. Yes. Fishing. It was, it's a great <laughs> it, analogy. It's a great analogy. And that's really for my non-statistical brain, the best way that I understood it. So the whole reason why we have a primary outcome is because you can say like the chances of me making a type one error, right? 0. 0.05. 0. 0.05 is type one. Point the, five. the risk of, uh, I'm not going to talk about no hypothesis, but the risk of uh, uh, stating something is true when in fact it is not true. Exactly. But if you decide like, I'm just going to check for 5 billion things with the same po- patient population. First of all, you're doing a lot of work. A lot of money is going into this. And then the chances of you, you know, hitting gold or hitting that fish, hooking that fish, hooking, you know, that fish. <laughs> hooking that fish is much higher. So essentially don't go fishing people. Um, if you decide to look at more, if you, if you create more questions in your trial, you have to account for multiple, AKA multiplicity. And to do that, uh, a lot of people use the Bonferroni approach and they did that. So they found, uh, basically their P value was 0.017. So instead of 0.05, they had a, a much smaller p-value that they had to uh, reach. reach. They had to, yeah, they had, they had to get a, a lot lower they than had to 0.05. Attain, yes, exactly. Okay, so without trying to use too many numbers, basically their p-value when they accounted for multiplicity with the make 30. So we talked about make 30. Yep. yep. Their p-value for that was 0.01. So that is less than the Bonferroni p-value of 0.017. Got it. So it was significant. So they already, uh, like, they didn't okay. even need to... Great. Yeah, they... Good on them. Yeah, the Bonferroni, <laughs> yeah, like, they beat it. They were like, yes, there is a significant difference between sa- normal saline and lactated ringers, because mainly they use lactated ringers, like, no one used plasma light at this hospital. And they were like, da-da. Wait, wait, They were comparing what? Saline. To? Lactated ringers. Okay. All right. So they're comparing normal saline to LR. Yes. Head to head. Yes. Now let's get into results, which I've already kind of given away some things, uh, talking about multiplicity. But um, I will say that 88% of patients exclusively received the assigned crystalloid in the ED. So as I said, providers in the ED, even though depending on the month, they could still decide, no, I'm going to do whatever I want. And that that's fine. So 80, 88%, that's pretty good. Um, 
And there were no differences in the primary outcome. Remember, the primary outcome was trying to see if there was any difference in hospital-free days. Right. And they looked at those patients over a 28- to 30-day period. Um, So primary outcome, no significant difference. So let's talk about the secondary outcomes because this is where it gets a little bit confusing. So I'm going to talk about three separate things. The first one is what's called make 30. To make this more fun, within the make 30, there's three separate um, components. We're diving deeper. This is inception. (laughs) (laughs) Make 30 stands for major adverse kidney events before day 30. Make 30. Okay. What are those major adverse kidney events? They consider this one death from any cause, two, new renal replacement therapy, and three, persistent renal dysfunction. So basically a creatinine that's greater than 200% of what was considered the baseline. So those three things are all within the MAKE30, which is one secondary outcome. In the second secondary outcome is the proportion of patients with stage two or greater acute kidney injury. So there's a few criteria for that, but I don't need to go into that. Basically, just persistent AKI is what I'm considering this. And then the third secondary outcome is death. So make 30, AKI persistent, and death. Okay. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. But within make 30, there's also death, persistent AKI. sort of a different persistent AKI. Yes. Just like slightly different criteria. And then on top of that, they add HD or hemodialysis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Not not independent of each other totally. Yes. yes. That's the that's the trick. It's the, that's the trick of composite outcomes. Oh, you yeah. composite outcomes. Yeah. Okay. So tricky. so that's so from what I was reading, they're basically arguing that, you know, if you if you die, then you don't have a chance to get to HD or have persistent renal dysfunction. Right. If you have if you are now on HD or hemodialysis, you can't really be considered for persistent renal dysfunction because your creatinine doesn't really matter anymore. And then they also talk about persistent renal dysfunction. So they're trying to put that all together into one composite secondary outcome. Interesting. Yeah. So basically what was significant was that make 30 criteria. So because this is a secondary outcome, they had to account for multiplicity and there was three total secondary outcomes. There were two others. Uh, there was make 30, death, and basically persistent AKI. And so what they did was they used the Bonferroni equation, which is alpha over N, N being the number of outcomes. So I thought that they would use four as that denominator number because to me, you would have to include the primary outcome because that's still an outcome. But they actually used three instead. Um, so they used alpha, which is 0.05 divided by three because there's three secondary outcomes, which is fine. I was being like a little critical um, and I even took it a step further and uh, calculated, used other steps to account for multiplicity. One's called the Holm step down procedure. One's called Hutchberg step up procedure. Don't need to know that. But I will say that using those, they still met significance when accounting for multiplicity. It was my 
understanding, my basic understanding of the maths, that the bone Ferroni is the most is the most strict conservative. One. Yes, yeah, the most conservative, the strictest. So if you meet the bone Ferroni, you're likely to meet the other ones, and they're all just different equations that try to capture this. You know, what is the risk? What is your risk of saying something is actually different when in reality it is not? Um, factoring in how many different tests you're doing, knowing that there's a risk that you'll get a false, you know, a false positive. Mm-hmm. The more tests you do. Exactly. Yeah. So if they would have made the N equals four, they would not have met the Bonfroni criteria. So that's why I went on to use other calculations just to see, because I don't necessarily disagree with their use of N is three. um, Because if you use N is four, then for your primary outcome, your P value can't be 0.05. You have to, you know, account for that, which just gets a little bit confusing. But essentially, um, I confirmed in summary that their make 30 did meet significance. Okay. All right. Any questions? If it's good by you, it's good by me. (laughs) Yes. So any thoughts before I kind of give away what I was thinking? (sighs) Okay. Summarize. Yes. Who wants to summarize? Summary statement. This is an X year old. No, uh, (laughs) summary statement. So trial design People were parsed into, so patients coming into the emergency department who got resuscitated fluids were parsed into either a group of normal saline or LR and plasmolite, but there Mm -hmm. was no plasmolite or minimal plasmolite. Minimal plasmolite, yeah. Okay. Intention to treat. Mm -hmm. So um, if you were assigned to a group or if you were in a particular month, even if you got the other fluid, you were counted for that group. Mm -hmm. So we're on it. And uh, there was no difference in the primary outcome. So everyone stayed in the hospital for the exact same period of time, regardless of resuscitative fluids. Mm -hmm. But there was a significant difference in the, in the secondary outcome, specifically this composite make 30. Yes. Okay. And that met, they did multiplicity testing. And even after multiplicity testing, after uh, accounting for multiple comparisons, quote unquote, it was still significantly different. This composite score. Yep. Okay. Wow, that was helpful for me to grasp the study. Yeah, thank you for summarizing. And I will say when they broke down the um, the other secondary outcomes, because I didn't really touch on those, so just in-hospital death was not significantly different between the two. I remember in-hospital death is also included in that uh, make 30. And then the stage two or acute kidney injury, which was another secondary outcome, was also not significant. So two out of the three components of Make 30 were not significant on their own. When analyzed separately as separate secondary outcomes with separate uh, sort of criteria for them. Mm -hmm. Which is why composite (laughs) outcomes are loved by trial designers. Yes. Wait. So this would infer, I don't know if they show this data, but this would infer me to make the assumption, Ben's chortling, that fewer people in the lactated ringer group Lactated ringers group ended up on dialysis. Yes. That was also what I inferred. No, no, no. It would infer you, Rachel. Infer if we me. use Sean's usage of infer. <laughs> okay. Well, we've already established my grammar is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. And looking at the, the numbers, it's basically 18 people had, had to go on to be on hemodialysis who got lactated ringers compared to 31 who got saline. So like half. And, but 
again, the denominator for both of these is like 6,000. Right, right, so right. Yeah. It's still very small, but but sig- significant. Um, the odds ratio for those is 0.56. So my understanding of odds ratio in this situation would be the odds of hemodialysis in a balanced crystal in a patient that got balanced crystalloids is almost 50% less than with saline. Cool. I like, I like to think of odds as like a ratio of proportions, like yeah, the risk it really confuses me. It's very confusing. Yeah. Anyway, no, I think that's, that was great. The odds, the odds are lower. Odds are lower. Odds are lower. I like that. Okay. So what I will say as my critique is I thought this was a really interesting study I think they, I mean, they obviously used a lot of patience, a lot of time and effort went into that. The only thing that was significant was the make 30. And I didn't love the whole make 30. I don't love this composite score. Um, First of all, it includes death by any cause, which to me has like, what, like, how does that fit into like kidney disease, which is essentially what they're trying to say at the end is like normal saline causes more kidney disease. And I don't know, and they're saying that because, well, their make 30 was significant. And within their make 30, there's hemodialysis, yes. There's persistent AKI, yes. But there's also death. A little bit. It's a, a, hand, a, a handful of assumptions. A touch, perhaps too many assumptions. Yeah. Ben, what do you think? I agree. I, I, uh, composite outcomes always make me a little bit nervous. Um, I, I do think for a trial that's focused on the kidney... It's not an unreasonable composite outcome. And if, you know, if, I mean, trying to delay uh, progression of kidney disease is important. So I think it's a reasonable choice. I, I still don't, I don't love it, but it can, it still seems to have some effect on um, delaying um, progression of kidney disease. So yeah. I, I don't, I don't love it, but I also don't hate it. I, and I, I appreciate and understand it. I, I guess I'm a little reassured. So, you know, in my mind, these fluids are like almost the same. Okay. LR might have a little more other things. So there's calcium, there's lactate, there's less chloride, whatever. And if you're going to treat these as sort of equivalent, you know, like they're the same, any isotonic fluid, like a hint at a benefit in one might be like, all right, well, if I was going to otherwise flip a coin, I might as well pick the coin one that may have a benefit. I don't know if there's a cost difference. I don't know if there's, there's not a cost. Dif- it's like a 25 cent per bag cost difference uh, for lactate ringers. Over 15,000 people. Yeah. Oh, and I said I was going to look up plasma light. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like look a couple hundred bucks. About that. Oh, wow. Per bag. Uh, no, you know what? I'm going to rescind that comment and we're going to put it in the show notes. <laughs> Get back to us. <laughs> I was like, hot diggity, that is no, in no way worth it (laughs) Uh, because it's like $2 a bag for LR. At least that's what my electronic medical record tells me every time I try to order it. Thanks (laughs) so much for that little nudge. Um, No, but I I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's not the best composite outcomes never are the best, but it's, um, it's still appropriate for what they were looking at. I think. Yeah. I I think there's, I I would love to talk to to a nephrologist about what the standard outcome measure that they are using. And I think make 30 is definitely one of them, but I do think that there are pluses and minuses to that, especially because what's in the make 30 may have nothing to do with each other, like death versus being on HD. And also 
people who start hemodialysis, like, are they on it forever? Like, is it just a day? Is it, you know, that th- they don't go into that. They basically say, oh, you were on HD, even if it's for one time, then you were considered uh, to be in the most severe, like. That's such a good limitation. So if they included people in the Make 30 group who had put on renal replacement for any period of time, even if they eventually had renal recovery. Yes. Wow. Exactly. And then the other thing about like the persistent AKI that bothers me is that a lot of, we discharge a lot of people with a persistent AKI that recovers, you know, the, the definition of CKD, I'm pretty sure is like 60 days persistently. So you know, what does that mean for the patients? Are your urine output low? Like clearly it's not low enough to put them on hemodialysis. So is that component of the make 30 clinically significant? Cause to me as a patient, I'd want to know, am I going to be on dialysis or not? Like that is a lifestyle change. Yeah. I don't really care what this random number is. Like I want to know it, are, are my kidneys damaged and within 30 days, I don't know if most nephrologists would feel comfortable with answering that. Um, so that's, you know, my issue with make 30 and again, yes, I'm going to continue probably using LR because that's where everything has shifted, but this was the main trial that decided that. And I still think that there's a lot of gray area that I don't feel like we should all be just jumping on like, nope, no more normal saline or let's say lactated ringers our country ran out of it. I think we would all survive getting normal saline comparatively. Yeah. I don't think all of a sudden we're going to have that many more people on hemodialysis. That's it. Wow. Yeah. I jumped hot on the bag bandwagon of let's use LR instead of NS. But I, I think I'm interested to now read the smart trial. Smart. Yes. Smart, med smart trial. was all done in the ICU. Okay. Yeah. I'm interested to see that. And I'm, I'm also trying to wonder if maybe this increase in patients who are on renal replacement, which we don't know is transient or not, is a function of maybe some worsening AKIs, but I don't know. We don't have enough data to tell based on this, just this trial. Yeah. And also I'll say one thing that I did not see, which I encourage everyone to go digging for is whether or not they parsed out between all the patients, like what was the reason for getting resuscitated? Because I do think that would make a big difference. None of these patients went to the ICU. So, you know, it's probably why there were still low numbers of people who ended up requiring hemodialysis in general. That makes sense. What a great trial. Yeah, it was a good trial. And um, I think it definitely, you know, I kind of got a little like, stickler like when a nurse would say to me like you know a bag of ns is hanging can i continue i'd be like now switch to lr it's like who (laughs) what am i talking about you know like the it's they haven't actually even studied it in patients who are just on the floor getting like a small bag that's great thanks for leading us through rachel thanks guys thanks guys (laughs) thank you and and thank you to all our listeners and to Zeba, <laughs> Justin, Tudor, and Ed Wang, who all have uh, uh, boarded the team to help us uh, make this podcast. And a special shout out to all of our listeners to please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, like us, leave a comment, give us some feedback. And uh, Aaron, we forgot to oh take Aaron. Oh my God, Aaron Miller. <laughs> 
the hero of the podcast. (laughs) Does our art. Artist extraordinaire. Useless med school notes. The Michelangelo of 2020 is what I've heard him called by, well, me. By (laughs) by Sean. Uh, Thank you, everyone. (laughs) Rachel's dying. (laughs) 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 As she coughs. Outro. I don't even know that I have the know-how to explain okay. regression modeling. I, I don't know the bandwidth to like go through even that go mentally through that. right now. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Because I already tried and I failed. Okay. But you tried valiantly. <laughs> and that, Seriously. The journey saying. was worth... <laughs> the journey. I am, I'm not kidding. I hope Seriously. you guys like that journey for me because I hated it. <laughs> um, you grew from that journey. <laughs>